Creature Cast, a darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre. You are listening to Creature Cast, your darkly tinted look at the creepy, the salacious, and the macabre. And uh, I'd like to welcome back all our regular listeners to our uh, seldom recorded but never beaten podcast here. Yay. Uh, thank you all for sticking around. Welcome to all you new listeners. And tonight, in the spirit of not quite getting to subject matter when it was timely, we're going to be discussing Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Now, uh, I have two guests today, one of whom uh, has been on the show a couple times and one of whom uh, is a new attendee. So uh, without further, and I kind of brought them in because I think they're both really interested in this film. Um, it resonated with both of them for kind of similar and different reasons. And I wanted to bring them on and kind of like, let's all talk about this really interesting, unique movie. So uh, start off with the old favorite. We've got Robin. Hello, Robin. Welcome back. Hey, and our new guest is Becky. So Becky, she is from my um, my genre fiction book club here in New York City, which you should all join. It's a meetup. Please uh, don't stalk and kill us there. But um, hey, Becky, welcome aboard. Hey, I'm glad to be here talking about Crimson Peak. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, we're happy to have you here. So let's uh, let's kind of dive in on this. Um, Crimson Peak didn't really do like okay y'all saw it like i don't know if anyone else did but they were like for a couple of weeks in new york city like every subway station every bus every any flat surface had a photo of mia wasikowska and if i mispronounce her name i apologize or jessica tastain kind of floating ethereal and ghostly in this sort of red haze against this creepy like blue wall um like so, I guess that's the first question I want to ask you guys, and either of you can kind of pick a summer ones. What about this sort of made you want to see this film? Uh, like, what what said? Oh, I got to go check this out. Was it just Guillermo del Toro? Was it sort of in the in the marketing? Like, what what made you guys like what pulled you into the Crimson Peak experience? Honestly, I would see anything that Guillermo del Toro does. I really like his body of work and uh, all the actors. I thought the actors were sellers. It was like, I don't care what this movie is about. I want to go see it. And the fact that it was billed as a gothic horror movie it was just icing on the cake. Um, so that was what interested me most. Yeah, um, it's a little bit complicated for me. I passed by that ad many times, and I kept playing with the red and blue motif, thinking it reminded me of like a... A strange revival of um, 3D glasses in the theater. It was just very, <laughs> very specific coloring that might have been a little bit off-putting at first. And I saw the um, the Mia posters, and then I saw the Tom Hiddleston posters. And my hang-up with him is that he looks a lot like an ex of mine. And so I've managed <laughs> to stay away more than I would like from his work, even though I think he's amazing. On a lonely Sunday, I rarely take myself out on dates to see movies. I passed by the poster, and I thought, all right, I don't know if this movie's going to be good or bad, but it's definitely going to, like, scratch that yen for a dark gothic chick flick that I need right now, so that's why I went to see it. A dark gothic chick flick is a brilliant way to word it. Um, So, yeah, I kind of similar. Like, there was kind of a drought of horror movies or just any kind of macabre material uh, for a long time, and it was getting close to Halloween. I wanted to see something spoopy. And, uh, you know, it had the Guillermo del Toro name, which I kind of want, my relationship is a little complex with his work, um, and I'll get it, not negative, I'm not saying, like, complex, like, passive-aggressive, bad, but, like, uh, anyway, we'll get on that later. But, um, I, you know, here's the thing, 
Tim Burton had become sort of this like goofy brand. Like, you know, I want gothic fiction. I want stories of the strange and the unusual and the bizarre and the beauty and the macabre. Because like a lot of horror is very sort of like condemning of what it displays. Like, we're going to show you the extreme, but it's bad. And I'm like... There, but there is something like I'm attracted to God stuff because I do think there's sort of this there is beauty in the macabre. There's beauty in this sort of like the gloom and the sense of decay and like you know sort of like emotional theatrical tragedy, like the trappings of those things. And I wanted to, and I think that the way this movie was sold was that it was made by somebody who understood that, but who hadn't kind of devolved or at least like just sort of came into this sort of like self parody that. Burton's film Burton's films are often accused of being um, whether or not they are that's a conversation for a whole nother t- story uh, but someone had said something to me I think it was actually one of you guys it might have been you Becky that this wasn't a horror film this was a gothic romance and Guillermo del Toro himself he said that um, and he, I think that I get the impression too in some of his interviews that he was actively fighting against the marketing but he said that this movie was um, it was meant for bookish uh a bookish tween girl and you know it's and and i think it brought the conversation back to like elements of the gothic have always been a part of fiction it's out in a lot of stuff but i think this was the most overt pastiche or homage to the genre um before we kick in uh what is gothic literature or gothic romance like uh, what do you what what is your relationship with those terms I think in general, gothic literature or romance is already um, just kind of presenting to you at base value that you're going to be dealing with characters that already have a relationship with the melancholy and the sadness so that you're not going to encounter people who are absolutely flabbergasted when something dark happens, but it happens to be a regular part of their universe so that they can kind of go back into the, the simple aspects of relationships that can exist on like a grandly dark scale. I think of the relationship between uh, Morticia Adams and Gomez where obviously there's some BDSM stuff happening there (laughs) and you know they're having (laughs) they're having these grand and passionate moments but at the core of it like any good improv sketch is just the basic game of relationship but what's so appealing about it is that you've already gotten past that layer of uh, being surprised by dark things, and instead you can delve into the relationships with what's what's out there and creepy and different. I also think that uh, with a gothic romance, we I, I'm sure everyone has like read something at some point in their life that has a gothic romance elements in it, and so you already know sort of what you're in for there. You're like, okay, there's going to be like a sprawling manner and people wearing these <laughs> flowy dresses, and everyone has is in a heightened sense of reality um, that you don't get with like a really controlled family drama or something like that. So you're in this heightened sense of reality. Um, everything about the story, it's like pumped up to number 11. You're like, man, I'm here for this. Like these relationships are so over the top. And it's fun because you know what to expect. The gothic, ro- uh, the gothic romance tropes are um, well-known. And to see that uh, in this movie and to see someone like paying homage to it, it's, I think it's really fun. Yeah, I think that both you guys nailed it in terms of the sort of passion and the theatricality of it, because gothic fiction of all stripes, are they're melodramas. Like, if you want to be really reductive, they're like sad old people moping around in a castle, not talking about that thing that happened. 
Um, and I think that's a lot of it is like to me, the sense of the Gothic is a sort of the decay of the aristocracy. Like, and that's not universal. Like, Southern Gothic tends to be a little bit more blue collar but it still has that sense of the decay of the aristocracy. It's a lot of manners or plantations crumbling around the characters as they're struggling to and ultimately fail to escape from the ghosts of their pasts. And I think that's sort of um, uh, kind of the thing that sort of appeals to me is that there's there's a beauty within that entropy and that sort of like crushing sadness like you know we're all bummed about some shit that happened to us back in the day like i still remember like you know a time i was inadvertently rude to somebody and they took real umbrage i'm like picking it in my brain at like three o'clock in the in the morning but then you like make it happen in a castle and make that umbrage happen to a dead uncle who is secretly also your father or some shit you know it's like that to me is a gothic and a little bit of perversion you got to have a little bit of perversion yeah, and on the subject of what uh, I think is so attracting about that genre is that um, part of what therapy is is breaking down the issues with your relationships so that you realize that you know, you're know you being histrionic or overly dramatic over something simple. But what these types of dramas entertain is this notion of forever love and the kind of stuff that our emotions are made of, the kind of stuff that fuels that feeling of like, he didn't fucking call me and I texted him like three minutes ago we're falling apart and we're not the same to each other anymore and you know that it's childish but it's the it's also in that realm of childish where you want to explore the fantastical which is eternal love and I think a lot of these melodramas are wrapped up in that kind of fantasy actually I wanted to ask you this Becky because you are a southern woman and I and I had uh, mentioned southern gothic and like I get a sense that you have or at least I guess I'm talking stereotypes, but Southern people have kind of a sense of their history and the sort of the, the kind of that, that loss of empire thing. Um, does that resonate at all with you? Does um, that like weigh with you? Well, it doesn't resonate with me as much like personally in my life because my, my dad was, uh, he, his family was rednecks, like <laughs> hardcore rednecks. Uh, so I have no crumbling mansion that I'm, I'm emerging from. Uh, as, I, as my lover is drowned in the swamp, uh, unfortunately, because that'd be great. But um, there's definitely a sense of that, especially I grew up in Dallas, and so we have McMansions in an area called Plano in Dallas, and there is a short-lived TV show called GCB, the star Kristen Chenoweth, and it was like the most accurate portrayal of uh, rich Dallas church ladies that I've ever seen, <laughs> because like their lives are like super... Um, GCB, Good Christian Bitches, but they couldn't say that on network television. Um, It was a great show. Um, But everything about their lives was like super heightened and, you know, everything like meant, like had a bunch of layers to it. Um, But it's really interesting in the South because you can't be blunt with someone. Uh, You preface things like, oh, bless his heart, Uh, which means like, what a fucking idiot. So so there's like uh, Southern Gothic. I I really love that genre. Um, And it's similar. Um, I would say there was a there's more layers to it, but definitely you see the similarities. So uh, the other reason that I, that I think we all kind of came to this film was um, the fact that it was made by Guillermo del Toro. And Guillermo del Toro right now, uh, I would say, is sort of the premier fantasist of cinema. Um, you know, he, and he's really good at it. He's really good at these, at building worlds, at sort of creating things from like, like he's not just aping the same comic book uh, characters for 20 years and kind of rehashing the same stories from from his you know Mecca he's got crimson or he's got a Pacific Rim from sort of like 
uh, Spanish Gothic tradition. He's got Pan's, and then like mythology, he's got Pan's Labyrinth, and I want to say the Devil's Backbone. From vampires, he's got Kronos, and from this, he draws very much on on the uh, on you know like what we think of as Gothic. And uh, so, I guess I'm going to kick this one off. I. God, you know, I hate that I live in a world where any kind of opinion is an extreme of something. I love that Guillermo del Toro is out there. I love that he is genuinely unique and innovative while still kind of maintaining connections with his roots. And I've liked every movie I've ever seen of his, but there's something about his work that I've just never really connected to in a way. Like, it's one of those things, like, the the Pacific Rim is a great example. Like, I should like it. I am. I've got a real hard on for gigantic robots that like <laughs> smash shit and like fucking families comprised of like abandoned daughters and like stern father figures and Idris Elba coming out of the mech looking at the girl like the goddamn avenging angel of the Lord. Like, and, and you know, I loved the again. I really hope it's the Devil's Backbone. So I want the bomb in the schoolyard. Um, like I love the sort of way that we find the the murder mystery out, like a like a Hardy Boys story, but with a really traumatizing ghost in it. I like his sense of visuals. I've just always had a hard time connecting to his stuff. There's always something that sort of just doesn't really click with me, and that's my opinion. Like, what are your guys' relationship with um, Guillermo del Toro's work? I have a similar reaction to him, and I've always thought of him as the director that gets away with putting his sketches into the movies as like <laughs> being this childhood fantasy, like right off the page and in front of my eyes because usually there's art directors and things that separate that task for me it feels like when his creepy crawly long fingered tiny eyed creatures by the way I don't know if you've seen David Bowie's most recent music video but it looks like Guillermo Guillermo del Toro and I don't know if he had anything to do with it (laughs) and Joe is freaking out right now very silently Um, but what I always feel like is that there is this character from his imagination making a cameo appearance in another story instead of it being directly connected I especially felt that way in Crimson Peak like it was enough for me to know that the environment was becoming creepy and the real monster ends up revealing herself at the end but that don't show the monster trope that comes into a lot of these horror films for the sake of building suspense and tension for better or worse I feel like is betrayed when one of his sketchbook creatures ends up entering the scene yeah that was actually kind of interesting about this movie in that the ghosts were pretty they're shown at the beginning and then they they really tapered off um because it you know, it was ultimately not their story, although they were helping Edith figure things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to Guillermo del Toro, um, I, I really do love his work. Um, I think he has a sincerity in his films that's really rare uh, in a director that does such uh, widely regarded and big budget movies. There is a deep sincerity in Pacific Rim and real optimism, I think. Um, less optimism in Crimson Peak, but Edith still in the end, like she still triumphed. And I thought there was like a real care for her character and for, you know, any young girl in that situation, you really felt Guillermo del Toro's like appreciation of of that kind of woman, especially what you were saying earlier, Joe, about this being a story for, you know, 14-year-old girls who like gothic romance. Um, I think he he did it in a way that sort of honored people who would like this movie with a, with a real deep sincerity. Yeah, I think you also kind of touched on one of the things that I think this movie uh, didn't, why this movie didn't do so well in the box office is that um, we maybe, I mean, I'm only, I've only been an American, I haven't been anybody else, but we really need our cleanly defined genres. And the movie was sold, like all the trailers are very ghost heavy and the sort of like, you know, the scene of Mia, of 
uh, what's her name? Emily? Edith. Edith. Of Edith, like, <laughs> laying in bed and this black hand creeping along her along her arm and, like, jostling her awake and, like, jump scare. I think that a lot of people expected, like, a, you know, something, like, a little more fanciful, but ultimately a story that was constructed around the sort of, like, loose, super loosely gothic structure of, like, the Insidious series or the Conjuring series, where it's stuff from the past, but it's ultimately just like, oh, there's a ghost here, let's get the people to exercise it. This really was a gothic romance, not a horror film, and I think that um, there's a big cognitive dissonance. Like, you see it a lot in the early reviews where, like, this is not the movie I was promised. This is not the story that I'd come to expect to see. This is about a girl who is a reader and a writer, um, who makes writing look so fucking easy, I have to say. But a reader and writer, someone who's very um, internal but can still hold her own, can still, like, sed- like dance on a dance floor and charm people and who has something in her spirit, both a, a, a courage and a curiosity and an openness and a, and a love for her father but kind of a want to, like, find her own way in the world and, a, and the backbone to stand up for herself against all of uh, Dr guy from Sons of Anarchy's mother and her terrible brood of, like, awful gossips. Like, there's a lot to her. And this character, who is really interesting, uh, disrupts the gothic... She disrupts and ultimately bears witness to the end of the Sharp family and the end of Crimson Peak. Um, Like, what do you guys think of the marketing? Now, especially when you're talking about, like, seeing the subway posters and then kind of what you... Did you get the movie you expected? Like, what was the movie? Because... I know both of you, I think both of you had said to me, like, you got to talk about this movie. Like, this movie's like, Pow. and was that cognitive dissonance in the way it was sold part of it? Because I know it was certainly, I had heard enough, like, I'd read enough reviews to know, like, I expect something else going in. And you're right, the ghost appearance is dramatically tapered off in it. But, like, where did, like, what was your, I guess, like, how did the marketing play a part of your reactions? Or, like, what did you think about the way it was sold versus what it was? It was definitely marketed as a horror movie, um, especially because it was released right around Halloween, um, and all of the posters made it seem like this is a movie about a haunted house, and there's ghosts in it. And <laughs> the, the house was haunted, and there were ghosts in it. But I think that the difference between what it was marketed to be and what it was is that the ghosts were really not... They, well, clearly, they were not the enemy in this movie. And so once you figure that out, they certainly were... They were no longer scary because they were helping Edith figure things out. And so... You also, at the beginning, like the first solid third of the movie takes place in Buffalo, New York, and it is not in Allerdale Hall or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, everyone is American and like happy and there's balls. Like, when are the ghosts coming? And there, I think there was a ghost in that part of it. But you're like, okay, this the is... Mother, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this is not the movie that I was expecting. I thought it was going to be like scary from the get-go. And there were elements of it. But when I figured it out, I was like, you know what? This is like fun gothic camp, and it's gorgeous, so I'm here for that. What was interesting to me about it that I wasn't expecting, even though I knew it was a Guillermo del Toro movie, um, is that elements of the modern CGI and very visible and vibrant ghosts that were there in the beginning did this very subtle job of desecrating like an old genre. So comparing the new look with a type of human interaction that we associate with being both antiquated but still interesting had a dissonance that I hadn't seen before because it almost seems wrong. And the fact that it felt kind of like 
a rave at church in a way <laughs> made me walk. At first I was like, I should think that was really awful, but actually it was super delicious. And then I spent the rest of my day, I went to like a craft fair and bought a dark stormy mm-hmm. looking scarf and like bought these uh, perfumes that had scents, uh, titles like Dagger Moon. And I, I was just like on like a witch bender. So I realized that for better or worse, it inspired uh, an appreciation of darkness in me again that I think came from that strange, um, strange dissonance. My God, both of you are just handing me like lead-ins <laughs> to the next part of the conversation. So in the con- in the map we had laid out of this podcast, I had set the next one as goth, as in the goth scene trappings. But um, I, I think Robin and I both have more experience in that world than Becky does. But I kind of want to expand that out because there's something here that you ne- hit on that just like uh, flipped this question to something a little more universal. What is – there's certain people who would just like, okay, they're like sad, pale people in a house who gives a shit fuck off. <laughs> but there's also people like me who are just like – Yes, like, oh. <laughs> and it's like, what is it? And I kind of wanted, this is less about the movie, more about, like, your coming to the movie with who you are as a person. What is it about this kind of story that br- draws you in or, or brings you in? And, like, I've talked about my fixation on this stuff, like, tons. Of, I think this stuff is, like, I think I, I have a taste for, like, the beauty in the strange, the beauty in like sort of the theatrically melancholy, the theatrically morbid, the fictitiously decaying. Obviously, I have to preface that with like like theatrical and fictitious because real entropy is horrible, and it's like the existential terror of life. That said, gloom is pretty sexy, or at least to me, it's super duper sexy. So um, this is what I'm drawn to, and that's why. But like, what about you guys? Like, why did you? What about this movie pulled or called to you, or did you find like over the top or ridiculous? Um, what you just talked about sort of made me think of the attraction of melodramatic relationships and melodrama exists in the high dark fashion of the gothic aesthetic and in the interaction of the characters where you're, I, there's, there were moments when I couldn't believe, well, she's, you know, she's practically like an Ayn Rand character, but all of a sudden this like handsome, gloomy gentleman shows up in like a fine tailored suit and tells her her writing is good and she can't even pay attention to this wholesome (laughs) character who is absolutely infatuated with her and hasn't been able to take her down from her high horse. And stuff like that is so silly and so corny, but there was something about it that was really satisfying because you also knew, as her father suspected, that the Tom Hiddleston character was probably not a good guy even though he was really good at making you question that but but going beyond that for me personally coming into these types of films I feel like modern day society you hear so much about um, the importance of deconstructing feelings and simplifying things and and taking the humanity out of the sense of of emotions being one of the strongest feelings that you can experience so there's something like a, a childhood preservation instinct in me that I really like to see relationships of, of high drama and desire that go above and beyond what is expected in the normal conduct between people. Something about that is inspiring to me and raises larger questions about the complications that human beings have in interacting with each other. So for me, I honestly the greatest pull was the aesthetic of it sometimes you just want to see like a gorgeous like spooky gloomy house it just looks beautiful and it sort of feeds something you're like you know if i had money i would buy this a crazy mansion in the country somewhere and i would decorate it with like you know skeletons and like red velvet drapes and something about that feeling it's like yeah i want that damask 
everything. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, like, like really go back to the Victorian roots, like the best parts of it, which were just the decorations. Um, but Corset I mean, training. Okay, well, I, I can leave that one yeah. behind. But, um, but the other thing, like what you were saying about, you know, the heightened relationships, I think that's fun. And I think also um, it sort of speaks to this idea like when you're a young girl you're like I want a you know dark mysterious sensitive stranger to come and take me away from everything and if I have to deal with some ghosts so be it because it's Tom Hiddleston <laughs> god damn it mm-hmm. um so that's sort of like my very shallow you know thing that drew me to this movie not as steeped in in goth culture as you two are um just sort of the aesthetic of it well I think aesthetics tie into the uh, aesthetics are super important like I think that's nine tenths of the reason like when all that talk of like oh the high beauty of melancholy blah 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 it's like <laughs> I just like big flowy I like people in like massive black dresses walking up a huge flight of decaying stairs with like a fucking huge ring of keys in their hands mm-hmm. just, and the keys all unlock secrets so like but uh one of you guys was talking earlier about sort of the visuals of the color scheme and and um the the set design and i tend not to honestly like i tend to be more narrative oriented than visual oriented so a lot of this stuff just like well i feel things i don't know why uh or you know, dude but like uh, talk about sort of the, the visual or the, the kind of the stylistic choices that the director made and the costume designer made and the stuff that really sort of sprung out to you or sort of resonated with you. Yeah. Um, so one thing I picked up on well, I was watching the movie, I come from a theater background. I did Czech theater. so And I was a set dresser and set designer. So I did pick up on the color scheme a lot. And pretty much everything that Eve wears um, is in the gold uh, yellow family and when she is being poisoned it's sort of darkens into this like real sickly yellow uh, which is really cool and then at the end of course she's like clothed in all white standing in the snow spider with blood in the clay so that's like a really striking image and Lucille um, is I don't think blue is the opposite of yellow but she's always clad in this like really deep blue uh, it's gorgeous like dark and it fits with their dark hair um, and then if you also think about the primary colors crimson peak and this house that's like bleeding red clay from the wall so you see you know set on this snowy background this um, these splotches of red and like the blue of Lucille's dress and the yellow of Edith's hair and her like dressing gown and it's just these really great visual metaphors for what their characters are supposed to be representing I think um not that blue is like an evil color and yellow is pure but I think that's sort of what was being implied in this movie I guess that's what I picked up on at least yeah it's just the movie was so freaking lush I mean my first thought before I started thinking about all the bits and pieces was oh my god those costumes were absolutely sensational and one of the gifts of it being a modern and contemporary film was that you saw what you would want to see if you were watching a classic that had the same characters every and I don't mind seeing all those details I'm kind of bummed when they're obscured it's like watching a fermented like wine rich version of beauty that is so above and beyond what you're accustomed to seeing on a daily basis and I, I I'm a, a sucker for like you know the perfect tailoring and everything's laced up and just these moments when you know it's hard to believe that what you're looking at is an actual image of human beings and that it wasn't you know a, a underpainting of, of a fantasy world and and all of that in the film was enough for me that if I, you know, wasn't even following a, a specific storyline, I still would have enjoyed being in front of it for an hour and a half. 
Yeah, it's actually funny. I totally forgot. Both of you guys have a background in theater, and you both have a sense of like visual design and stuff like that. So I really kind of picked the right people to do this podcast with. Um, so then I guess in kind of tying into the visuals, I want to talk a little bit uh, before we get into the core narrative and the relationship of the characters. I want to talk about the setting of Sharp Manor and uh, Crimson Peak itself. Um, for me, I think it was it was sort of gothic melancholy taken out to such an absurd level that um, it, it's it's a little, and I say this in a loving way, like we tend to assume ridiculous is like a negative, but like it was a little ridiculous. Like their shit was so crumbling that the fucking roof was gone. And like there's constant sn- or like snowfall coming in or like leaves from a tree that couldn't possibly be above the manor. There were no trees. And okay, and full disclosure, I'm, I'm stealing a lot of these observations from uh, Mallory Arpberg and Nicole Cliff's amazing like article yelling about movies with Mallory and Nicole. Uh, they're the editors in chief of the website The Toast. And if you are a if your soul is that of a bookish eleven year old girl, you guys have to read this stuff because it is so like they they have such a literary mind literary mind and they're so good at like deconstructing this stuff. But anyway, tangent over. I'll attach a link into the show notes. But um, yeah, like there's no there's always leaves falling from the 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 battlements of the building and there's no fucking trees up there the ground is literally bleeding crimson the walls are bleeding crimson like everything looks cold and foreboding and everything looks kind of rotty and like all the portraits are like of like hawk faced old british (laughs) fucks like just like i know you're pissing away my inheritance and you're fucking each other like like but the setting of the house like it's you know and all the machinery is rusted all the vats in the basement they clearly all have corpses in them like Everything about this house, the setting of it, and the sort of, like, locked trunks and key rings and, you know, even the little, like, the, the tea, not cozy, the, the, the little container she holds, her po- the, Lucille has the poison tea in. Like, everything about this is such this, like, rich, it's such an invite, like, it's like, if you needed someone to convey, like, this is gothic decay and crumbling, don't be subtle about it. That was Crimson Peak itself. But, like, yeah, what do you think? I, I think that, yeah, it gave the feeling, the closest you can feel to being lost at sea without there being a ship in the movie. And I had a couple moments where, you know, she realizes early on that, like, she's getting fucked with, but she can't leave. And it goes into the, the like, in the background, not explicitly stated elements of, you know, the fact that a, a woman needs to have some sort of caretaker. Um, but in addition to that, when she's out playing with the dog in the field and you just can't see anything for miles, it's like they're in the most remote dreamscape you can imagine. And I had just returned from Dublin when I saw it. So I didn't have to suspend disbelief too much to understand what it's like to be in gloomy, disgusting weather and to not really feel motivated to run away because there's nowhere to run away to except for your bed. So I I was buying into it. Yeah, and it was also interesting when you um, got a sense of the size of this manor and you're like, she stays in three houses, like three rooms in this huge house. She can't go anywhere else because it's either like rotting or the doors are locked. She has like her rooms and like the kitchen and the parlor and like that's all, it's the only places she could go so even within this huge this huge like rotting manor where the outside is encroaching on the inside in the vast snowy plains with nothing to see like it still feels kind of claustrophobic in a way because um she's she's trapped there as you were saying robin she's she and she can't go anywhere and even when um charlie hunnam can't remember his character's name uh, <laughs> that, that but that puppy 
Oh, Alan McMichael. No wonder. I couldn't remember his name. Um, when he comes to find her, he, like, walks, like, ten miles from the nearest town. And, like, okay, so now you have frostbite and you can't fight anyone. So it's like, how do you escape from that? Oh, my God. This is totally tangential, but you brought him up. And just, I have to say, the scene where... <laughs> the scene where he's like, I know you're a doctor. Tell me where to stab you. <laughs> At that point, I think I might have wet my pants and bit my tongue really hard. And I don't know if that lost the film for some people or made it for some people, and regretfully, it made it for me. It, like, honestly... <laughs> see, I, here's the thing. Like, and as much as I love this sort of, like... Like, I find... This is going to sound really odd, but I find real... Like like my other love aside from horror is um, martial arts films. I love. I think they're like they're balletic if done right. Like it can be really really beautiful. And there's that part of me that sort of triggers. Like that, it lost it a little bit for me. It's like <laughs> at that point he made a conscious choice to betray his sister. We're gonna get into the relationships later. But like fake a fucking stabbing, cut him a slice him alongside the ribs. Like is he gonna really like? Oh yep, poking that hole. Yeah, that is. <laughs> That is sufficiently detoured. And it's like, it was one of those things where I can't imagine he was not self-aware enough to not think, oh, this is a little silly. But, like, I feel like the motto of this movie, it's like, okay, it's a little silly, but, like, in a playful, shruggy kind of way. That was go big or go home. Yeah. 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 And it's, um, yeah, so uh, I guess, so let's, uh, having kind of explored, oh, and, and the side note, we talk about the setting of Crimson Peak. We talk about the, the men's club that's sort of like, you know, where uh, her father gets the... What? Jim Beaver. He was great. Oh, he, he was. My, he was one of my favorite characters. Oh, he's, he's a great character yeah. actor. He's a great character actor. You don't see him enough stuff. Um, Supernatural wasted him. I'm sorry. They fucked him up. Um, Who was he in Supernatural? He was. He was Bobby. He was amazing. He was Bobby in Supernatural. And bite like, your tongue. They wasted him. <laughs> no, the, the way that they they killed it was terrible. Anyways, yeah, the show uh, sorry. Oh, you're right. So up to season five, he was great. So like, I had not seen him in anything else. I was like, he is great in this movie, and he is also, you know, so smart. And the way that he died was great. Oh, oh man, yeah. that was wonderful. That was the horror in the film, right there. Yeah, yeah. and that's also interesting. And this is something, um, not related to anything we talked about so far, but I thought there was a lot of bait and switch with how they were going to murder people because he was like in a bathhouse. I thought she's going to drown him. She literally bashed his head against the side of his sink until his brains came out. And then later on, um, there was a lot of focus on this fire, and I was like, she's going to put Tom Hiddleston's beautiful face in that fire. And she didn't. She stabbed him in the face. Also sad, but not quite as sad. Yeah. So there was, like, that's really tangential, but an interesting bait and switch with the murder. Oh, it was. And, and I do think, like, the gothic murders have to be really sensational, and a j- discreet drowning in a men's room turlet is not the same as, like, just cold smacking a dude with the side of... And, like, I was really impressed, too, because I swear to God, I thought it was going to be Thomas Sharp. I really did. But it was Lucille. I don't, like... She walked into a men's club, dressed as a dude, snuck up on this dude, saw the angle he was playing. It's like, fuck it, I'm going to murder you broad daylight style. I'm going to wait for your valet to leave and just cold clock you. Like, I'm sorry, that was killer. Anyway, tangent over. We're just supposed to talk about the gothic heroine now. Specifically, we're supposed to talk about Edith. And uh, I want to talk about Edith, but I want one of you guys to kick it off. Who's got things to say about Edith? Like, who was, like, what was your first impression upon getting to know her, upon, like, learning kind of who she was? Like, did she re- did she resonate with you? Did you relate? Like, were there things about her personality that really uh, you gravitated toward? 
I think what immediately established that it was a gothic horror is that the first moment you're introduced to Edith, she experienced the death of her mother. So in terms of people having ghosts, from the very beginning, you know that this person is not going to be um, happy-go-lightly until something bad happens, but that she's already seen some shit. So she's got the credibility to to be kind of... and but But at the same time, like, that historically was something everybody had experienced. So the fact that she was so particularly strong in her in her will and in her desire to be recognized as a as a writer. Actually something we didn't talk about is the fact that, you know, the, there's this whole um, undercurrent in the film of her wanting to create fiction. I can't remember what the subject of her story was. It was uh she said this very clearly, which I thought is interesting. It's not a ghost story. It's a story with ghosts in it. Right. Um, and I think at one point, someone was like, oh, it's our very own Jane Austen. She said, I'd rather be Mary Shelley, which is very telling to her character. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's that's wonderful. And that's kind of heroine that fits really well in a gothic romance. Yeah, thank you for the reminder on that, because that seemed so long ago <laughs> in the film for me and all the parts I'm remembering. Um, but... Uh, I, I went back to another scene before we launched into her that hopefully we'll go back into the conversation about her. One of my other favorite Tom Hiddleston moments uh, in the film is when he makes good on his promise to her father to break her heart, and they have this scene on the stairs where he just reads her her rights and takes down every last bit of her ego in the best possible way. I think for as corny as the film was in its in its expected melodrama, that scene was pretty fantastic and satisfying in a lot of ways because you still didn't know in terms of Tom's character whether or not he actually fancied her. You it, you really... And he managed to put off that realization for a long time, for me anyway. Yeah. Um, and Edith's character, you know, with her at the beginning when... Or I guess not when she's a child, but when she's doing, she's writing and she's like talking to her dad about she doesn't want to go to this dance. She just wants to like, you know, stay home and be alone and work on her writing and try to get it published. And she's taking a lot of agency, like she she has a lot of agency um, that I think it's sort of not detracted. Um, um, So when she's getting poisoned in the manner by Lucille, I was afraid that she would lose her agency there. Um, And she doesn't because the ghosts are helping her figure it out. And she starts saying, oh, my God, I can't, you know, drink this tea or this porridge or whatever. And so even when she's literally being poisoned, she's figuring stuff out. She's trying to figure out a way to get away. Um, And Alan McMichael, Charlie Hunnam, whatever, he -hmm. comes to rescue her. And then in the end, she ends up rescuing him and, like, really sort of turning this idea of like a passive you know female character on its head which is what you might think of in a gothic romance you're like oh yeah she's just waiting to get married and she's like going between two lovers or something like that no she had a plan to be a writer she did eventually get married and go off to this manor and then figured out that was a bad idea and is trying to get out of it and trying to stay away and asking Thomas like I don't want to stay here anymore you have to take me somewhere else you're my husband I don't want to be here anymore As you remind me of the series of events and I start to think about where she fell for this character, I, when you think about the fact that the way she was designed is that she was obsessed with deconstructing people's attachment to the past and she meets this handsome character that is clearly so wrapped up in it that he becomes a more compelling puzzle than her fiction. I think I can understand why she was so attracted to him outside of the aesthetic. Becky, you said something before we started as we were just sort of like laying out the notes of the show that uh, the conventional gothic fiction, or like what we often think of as gothic fiction, women are um, 
very frail, very unempowered. And in this, the female relationships dominate the narrative. Um, you know, Lucille is the is the kind of the core. I always hate like for some reason I can't really think of her as a villain for some weird ass reason. But like, um, yeah, like it's really a battle of wills between Edith and Lucille for the soul of Thomas and the soul of Crimson Peak and what it could or could not be. Um, like, as women. <laughs> Here we go, crossing that rickety bridge at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, what did you guys think of that sort of the the sense of agency that the characters have portrayed, the sort of um, uh, the way that their choices had uh, shaped the narrative and shaped the kind of the force of where things were going? And like, like I guess explain a little bit more like what you what you observed or what you kind of thought about that because that really stuck out for me too. It's like it is a woman's story. Right. So one thing I thought was interesting is that if any of the character, like of the three main characters were underwritten, Thomas was pretty underwritten. Um, and he was the passive character. He was sort of like the rope in the tug of war between Edith and Lucille. And so you see um, Edith coming in. She's just supposed to be another in a string of like people that women that Lucille and Thomas are killing and she is able to sort of win him over to her side and then it is the battle between Edith and Lucille to see who's going to get Thomas who's going to come out on top here okay you want to say something and I want to hear what you have to say and Thomas you know is such a man <laughs> here he is working on this machine which is really his Stupid. ultimate passion he's just tinkering with it all day <laughs> meanwhile these two women are trying to figure out why won't he take me out and Jesus Christ why won't he stick to the plan but Thomas maybe this film is actually pretty insulting to men <laughs> in retrospect because he just keeps getting volleyed around like this you know, like dildo tennis ball, and ultimately he still manages to maintain a deep and intense passion that ends up being his undoing. That is a great phrase. That's fantastic. Um, but yeah, like he is—he's so ineffectual. He is like—he's a wishy-washy character. Like he really does just want to like do his claim machine. He's like, I mean, I guess if I have to kill this person to get money for my machine, <laughs> you're gonna twist my arm. I'm like, sure, okay. Um, I don't think he really cares. He's like, I guess I have to die. Um, but but Lucille is like the 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 driving force in the relationship, like much more so than Thomas. And I do not remember who's the elder. I think it might be Thomas, but I'm not sure. Um, but either way, like Lucille has had a fucked up history. Like she, um, well, she murdered her mom uh, and then was put into an asylum, which at that time, like fucked people up. And the fact that then she got out of it and was trapped in this house, then also I think had a sense of claustrophobia being trapped in this house with her own ghosts, which we don't see, but you assume are there, um, really make her um, a sympathetic character in a way. Because as another woman in this time period who got the short end of the stick in a lot of, uh, in a bunch of ways, was able to become this kind of serial killer and make things happen for herself and her brother. One more thing I was reminded of, a really interesting choice in this film is that you said she probably has her own ghosts. You would assume that they're getting some shit from the specters of what they did, but you never see the two of them interacting with any of the ghosts. So there were definitely moments where I was like, are these people alive? Probably from the very beginning. But the more you find out, the more you realize you, you're very forced into Edith's perspective. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, I think, um, and just because I know there's someone out there like being a jerk about it, but I miss stuff too. There's like, I, I it's been a while since I've seen the movie. Uh, we're introduced to Edith. She says she can see the dead, and it's because of her mother's death. So okay. she can see them in a way that they can't. So them, it's just a nasty, empty house. Except toward the end of the thing, mm-hmm. when um, Lucille can finally see the ghost of her brother. That's like, the yeah, first yeah, 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 yeah. So that's yeah. when she, and that's, okay. and that's when fucking Edith, and you know, I know, like violence and patriarchy and all that but she fucking clocks her with the yeah. shovel that was another one i thought i thought she was like gonna get pushed in the clay machine because it was right there and i was like she's gonna get ripped up by the clay machine i was like oh she got hit in the head with a shovel and that's cool too but <laughs> another sort of you know missed opportunity Camel del toro oh my god that was the and that's the thing is these two you know and obviously if you don't want spoilers don't listen to a podcast on crimson peak <laughs> but um like they were fucking murdering their way through the um dowries of Europe because he essentially developed what was basically a scoop on a conveyor belt and I just like you know in my own head anytime I'm sort of like playfully making fun of the movie I sort of have Thomas Sharp as Azrael Abyss from SNL's <laughs> Got Talk I've invented a device and it's got a scoop on a, sh- on a, on a conveyor belt he's a vision of pure malevolence and he works with me at Cinnabon <laughs> so yeah um <laughs> Oh, poor Thomas. So uh, kind of moving on to that to the next thing, like the core of this story is in the relationships. And you guys have both touched on something that I kind of want to expound on because in co- like I think the reason we talk about stuff, and I talk about this a lot in the book club, is that we get impressions of our feelings, but we can't really articulate them. You nailed something that was um, that has always sort of rubbed me the wrong way. I never bought the Thomas and Edith thing. Because it's sort of predicated on the fact that he is immediately, and don't get me wrong, Edith is awesome. I would, I'd live with Edith. But, um, (laughs) like, the impression I got is, like, he's supposed to be this, like, like, smooth dude that can talk rich women into vulnerable positions. And, like, because they're all isolated in Crimson Peak, they all die mysteriously of illnesses. And, you know, nobody had, like, fucking internet background checker to check on. Oh, wow, he's been married, like, 48 times. (laughs) But, like. From the start, he comes off as an unassertive businessman, a guy with a dream that, like, he's trying to hold on to a legacy, and people call him, call him out on it. It's like, you could sell that shitty house. You could take what you have left, because we don't get to hold on to our aristocracy forever in a lot of cases. You could take what you have left, settle down somewhere comfortable, and try to live a life. But he really sees that there is, and there probably is in terms of, like, a minor, like, the clay of Crimson Peak has value to it, but he doesn't have the skill or the resources to monetize it. So he's been, like... He, he goes out, so you presume he goes out, he seduces people, he kills them, he uses their murders to finance his device and to kind of, and Lucille's more invested in kind of keeping the family name and the family tradition. He's invested, he, this is just like his shitty plan to make something better. But the fact, okay, tangent, like, I never bought him as a relationship. He was just too, like, and I don't get me wrong, I love Tom Hiddleston. I, I think he's really charismatic and attractive. He's, I, I don't really get the Loki, like, apologist in the Marvel fan universe because he killed 100,000 people for shitty reasons. But, like, I get that he conveys melancholy beautifully. And But I just, there's something, Edith, I didn't... I didn't buy that he had access to this. Like, I get it. Charlie Hunnam is kind of like, oh, he's like the safe bet and he's into her and that's like whatever. But like, I don't know. There, he didn't seem to offer her anything other than, yeah, your writing's good. Pine. You know, and then he gets to the, you know, and even his seduction and getting her to Crimson Peak, there's not really a lot of passion to it. He's just too haunted and too Byronic a character to be, like, lovely. And so, he, yeah, right, he's, he's passive in a way that I think kind of takes, 
He's he's a uh, what is what is this thing that's going to show notes the dildo tennis ball <laughs> of the thing and I mean even gotta say like I'm betting that there's a really like I'm sure that the scene was filmed in the limitations of the time but like I didn't really buy the sex scene he's like I'm about to go down to you I'm gonna kiss your inner thigh and then oh time to get into the uh, time to get into uh, first position so yeah I just I don't know I didn't but we're gonna talk about a couple of relationships. Um, Edith and him, Edith and Lucia. What did you think of Edith and Tom? Did anyone else feel that, or did you guys feel yeah. different ways? I, I agree with you, and in thinking about it, um, what it seemed like was that because he has ghosts, and since you so aptly pointed out she was supposedly the only one that could see them, that the potential real bond that they had was that she could see into his past enough to help him revisit the things that could break him away from that relationship from that um, bullying relationship with his sister but that being the case the fact that the the moment he meets her he immediately compliments her writing after reading less than a paragraph and keeps using it with side eyes every time she gets upset like oh by the way when are you going to uh, write this next chapter every time he wants to change the subject there's so much more evasion than connection in what they portray in the film that as a viewer, it's really hard to do anything but make up the reasons for yourself as to why they would have such a close bond. Yeah, I, I really didn't get that either. And I know at the beginning when Lucille and Thomas are discussing if they should you know, go for her in her inheritance, Lucille's like, she's really young. I don't know if this is a great idea. And I'm sure she was afraid of her you know, being young and beautiful winning him away. Um, which does kind of happen, um, although I didn't buy that either, really. So I, I wonder if it's like a combination of her youth, or maybe he really did like appreciate her in a way he didn't pr- appreciate anyone else because of you know her spirit or something like that. Um, I don't know because the film didn't tell me why. So <laughs> I'm just going to assume that you know something about her was like kind of refreshing for Thomas, and then at the end he's like. Oh, I'm not going to kill your doctor, and I'm going to appear as a ghost and help you kill my sister for some reason. <laughs> so I don't know. That was an interesting relationship. I didn't get it. Yeah, I, I also have to assume you know it's like it you know it's Victorian-ish, post-Victorian time. Nobody had like Tinder, and you didn't really have a lot of options. I just had to assume that not like most of his, and he had a kid by one of his previous wives. I have to assume most of them must have sucked. I want to see a Victorian Gothic with Tinder in the plot because I think that would be phenomenal. Okay, so um, kind of following up on that, we should really because we keep talking about Lucille, but we never talk about Lucille. So let's talk about Lucille, uh, who really, mm, yeah, it's like. Those two were odd. Like, Lucille and Edith were amazing. And Lucille was, like, everyone said all the reviews just praised Jessica Chastain to the heavens because she was so commanding. She was so sneaky. But she was so, like, fun. Like, she was a fun character to follow in a way that, like, you know, everyone says, like, oh, we root for the villains. We don't really root for the villains. But in that case, we kind of rooted for the villains. I was a little bit on her side. And I kind of, you know, like, I so I guess... I liked her hair in her dress. I liked the color scheme that she portrayed. I liked the way that she could like stand on top of a staircase and sort of look down at you with her hands crossed over her key ring and just that <laughs> sneering imperialist disdain. It's like, look, you're down to eating like radishes. You should maybe restrain your shit, but just like carrying her side and just the way that she like played the piano with her back all stiff, like sitting next to the like the images of all her dead ass relatives and the her ghostly self playing the piano forevermore in the halls of crimson peak and just like this strong like 
she's you know and it, when you say this stuff like oh, like especially kind of hanging around the like the horror circles I hang out with people like the camp elements of female villains they like the Carrie's moms and they like the um, you know Mrs. Voorhees's and people like that but there's something like not just there's the she's what she does kind of like you know people take that violence and they make it campy but I don't really think she was a really campy character I understood what she was doing she and like this sort of like elegant poisoner is such a cool gothic trope mm-hmm. um, what did you guys think of Lucille what sort of resonated with you like what did you guys think <laughs> about Lucille what did you guys think about her power struggle with Edith like what would you just your take on it I love what you just said, the imperialist disdain, which is like what drag queens are made of. (laughs) Um, She was so chic. The way you're introduced to her where she's playing piano like like a fucking, you know, I don't know. She was she she was so dark, but she was so satisfyingly dark that yeah, I couldn't help but kind of root for her a little bit too. I don't know if either of you have ever seen House of Yes with Parker mm-hmm. Posey, but it's this other character who's just so inside her own world, and it's also it's very this plot is very similar to House of Yes. It's a, a movie since you haven't seen it in which there's a family with a um, twins, and one of them who hasn't been back home in a long time, and he has a new girlfriend. He finally decides to bring her home because she's been pushing him to meet her family turns out his twin sister has had a incestuous relationship with him for a long time and she thinks she's Jackie O and so one of my favorite lines she has in the film is like when a certain person gets her mind on a certain thing a certain person needs to have it and she just flips the fuck out but every time she comes back into her own she has this like supernatural poise in her insanity that sort of I I don't know what's so satisfying about that but it makes for really compelling screen characters that are unforgettable yeah she definitely has poise and it's really interesting to see her in like this beautiful like blue brocade dress and like her hair all styled and she's at the kitchen like cooking mush (laughs) and then she then like throws across the kitchen it's great and um the scene where edith is in bed and she's feeding her porridge and scraping that spoon on the rim um like even in this sort of like almost maidservant role to edith um where she is the the former mistress of the house and the housekeeper and all this stuff. Like, she still has that air of aristocracy about her that she can't let go. And it's interesting to see when she when she's breaking down and losing her composure and her clothes are ripped and her hair's mus- messed up is when, um, you know, Edith finds her in Thomas. And, you know, then she's like, she kills Thomas and she starts running around. And so when she's afraid to lose Thomas and what she's, so desperately held on to, that's when um, she starts losing that composure, which is interesting. And talking about not being able to let go, tell me you didn't feel it in your hand when she grabbed the front of the knife in the final oh battle royale. Yeah. At that moment, her character suddenly became the fucking like dark prince of despair badass that like <laughs> it was it was so incredibly good. Can I say that was the most melancholy hand job I've ever witnessed in anything ever? Uh, it's going in, that's going in the show notes. Um, I think that, you know, to me too, one of the interesting things about her is that because she's so, because the battleground is so beautiful and because the rivalry is so overt and fierce, like a lot of the scene, like for a gothic romance, this thing had like martial arts quality fight scenes. Like the scene where she throws Edith down the main lobby and she hit, and Edith hits her back on that one railing. Yeah. 
and she's like springing back from that and then the fight amidst the like the rotting machinery outside the manor like that was because they were both like neither it wasn't really the like classic horror chaser like the the predator and prey thing they were hunting each other and there was like this power to both of those characters that was like i thought really really engaging and i think that's why like edith never I think that's what we like. Edith never seemed like a shrinking violet. Her weakness was due to the fact that she was being poisoned. But she um, she had a sense of who she was from the get go. She had a sense of courage. She was guided, albeit terrifyingly, by the spirit of her mother. And when she realizes what's going on, she still she knows that her husband has been poisoning his lovers and his wives, and she still wants to fight for his soul because she sees something redeemable there. And she's willing to go against this sort of, like, ultimately poisonous but still kind of fun relationship that they had together. And I thought that was, like, like they were worthy combatants. And that was one of the things that I loved. And, I you know, again, like, making everything into Gladiator. I just watched Spartacus today, so it's kind of on my brain. But they were worthy combatants for each other. And I think that both of them, I understood where they were coming from. I wanted both of them to win. And that was what made both characters so appealing. Um, you know, yeah, so I mean, that that to me was, that to me was, Edith. now we've kind of been talking about relationships, gothic tropes, things like that, uh, and this, so I want to get into one last thing, and I probably should have touched on it, because like, in retrospect, like, uh, they are more guides and set dressing, like ghosts in the classicals, and like, in the classic novels, ghosts aren't really the dominant forces in gothic narratives, like, when you think about something, like, what we think of as a ghost story, it's like, oh my god, we have this, like, split-level townhouse, and there's some hanging witch popping up in, like, bathroom mirrors that we close. Um, in this, you have the wives and Edith's mother. Edith's mother died of, I want to say, consumption or something. Um, and Lady Sharp. And, oh, sorry? Lady, Lady Sharp. Sharp. That's right, the, 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 the mom. The matriarch. Of the, oh, God, with the hatchet in the head? Okay, so uh, here's the thing. They, they essentially exist to do what uh, a lot of ghosts in, like, Kiyoshi Kurosawa films do, which is, like, stand up, like, scare people, but ultimately point them to a clue. And um, I didn't really get a lot of, like, I got that they were, like, they were designed, like, the, these are scary ghosts. These are sort of ur-ghosts, because I'm used to ghosts that are, like, just white blobby smudges or, like, obviously humans with a lot of makeup on. And I tend to be, you know, I'm, like, one of those guys, eh, CGI stokes for everything. But I got to tell you, like, exaggerating their features, making their bodies long, making the axe that was cleaved in her head really massive, making everything, like, drippy and decaying, they look like what I think goes, they're terrifying to look at. And, you know, obviously overexposure, you're right, overexposure does dull them. Mm -hmm. But I think, too, that, like, the visual impression that I had of these ghosts was very, very powerful because they are the exaggeration that doesn't make him human anymore. You can't, you know, if it's just like, oh, it's my dead buddy, but he's going to, like, guide the way, so whatever, we can play Nintendo later. Like, these are creatures that are unworldly, but they have human motives, and I think that was really interesting. What did you think about the aesthetics and the presence of those spirits in this in this movie? Um, I thought the ghosts were gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. They were, they were very, um, they were sort of, like, flowy. There's one of them that looks like... You know, their ectoplasm is, like, full of holes, and it's, like, flapping in the wind that's not there. Um, and the one with, like, the dripping red stuff, which reminds me of the opener of the, the Hannibal credits. Mm. It's really cool. Um, but my thought about the ghost is I looked it up later because I was like, Doug Jones was in this movie. Who was he? And I was like, of course. He didn't, like, motion capture or something for the ghost. And I just read an interview with Doug Jones where he mentions this movie. Um, and Doug Jones uh, was talking to Guillermo del Toro, and Guillermo del Toro was like, 
tell people it's a haunted house movie and ask them who the fuck they, you think you're playing. It's like, oh, of course, if Doug Jones is in a movie with a ghost in it, he's going to be playing the ghost. So uh, I, like, I really love Doug Jones, so I was really excited about that one. So that's my take on the ghost, is that Doug Jones did a great job as he's billed as, like, Edith's mother and Lady Sharp. And it's, like, great. Yeah, and I was, you know, they're sort of um, portrayed in the kind of classic style of residual hauntings where you realize as she's putting the pieces together that she saw one in the bathtub because that's where it was murdered and she saw one and it, it presumably all the places where they were were the places where these incidents occurred and you think back to that scene when he's showing her um the 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 puppy dog i forget the character's name again uh he's like i think i have something you'll appreciate and is playing into her morbid sensibilities and shows her those photos that look like they have apparitions in them um and that ends up being the case in the film that the house is just a series of tableaus of these memories and as she navigates the place and more of it opens up to her she gets to visit all of those places and so in a way in the same way that she's trapped you realize that so are these apparitions and memories and uh and i don't know yeah well, ultimately, the characters, the humans themselves are traps. Like, who are the biggest ghosts in the house? It's Thomas and um, Lucille Sharp. And that's like the classic, like, a proper ghost story isn't like, oh, I just bought this house. Oh, I guess it's haunted. Well, better call this, like, ghost plumber. Um, it's like the proper haunted house story is a character like Eleanor Vance from The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. It's a character who starts out haunted and who goes to a haunted place where all those worst tendencies can be taken advantage of. And there's nothing more haunt Like... In Thomas getting killed and appearing, like, we really see him in his natural state. I think all, both of them have been dead for a very long time. They're just, their corrupting influence pulls people in. The ghosts can't really, they don't seem to do any harm. Doesn't mean they're not malevolent. I got the sense the mother was trying to hurt Edith. Like, that wasn't a warning thing. It's just there's only so much she could do as an incorporeal spirit. But her crawling out of the bathtub, ooh-wee, that was the best bathtub crawl since The Shining. Um, and I think that's ultimately, like, that's the thing. It's a, it's a story about being haunted. And I think that's fucking hell. <laughs> if you hear a chime constantly in the background, it's because I can't figure out how to turn off my uh, messaging app. Um, anyway, I so I kind of want to get into just as we kind of run down. I want to get into my final thoughts. Um, I here's the thing. I, when I was originally laying out this conversation, I had my final note is I want to talk about the blue bearding of the story, which is something that uh, Mallory and Nicole talked a lot about in the course of their. Um, in the course of their, like, rant conversation, uh, where, you know, it's hard to care about Thomas Sharp because he, you, you can, like, care about a vampire because, like, I have to murder people to survive. I have to drink blood. I don't want to. And that's an interesting conflict. Like, Thomas is, oh, boo-hoo, I can't seem to stop, like, having sad things happen. Stop poisoning your fucking wives. Like, you cannot be a reluctant bluebeard. And I think that's the thing is that, like, maybe it's the fact that I'm male. Like, I was kind of fixated on Thomas and Thomas's, like, predicament and where he was. But um, in sort of revisiting the story through conversations with you guys, um, I've come to realize, like, Thomas is such a tangential character into his own narrative. It's really about these two women. And both these two women are really engaging and interesting. Their stories are worth exploring and telling especially once you kind of shake the notion of like because i guess i kept seeing him as like he's got to be really good bait to, for, for her to fall into this trap but it's really about these two characters he's not honestly I, don't, I still don't think he's that good bait but like um i do think that like what i have come to value about crimson peak is that it's a beautiful film it is chalk to the brim with like like it's it's garish 
You know, it's not like Terrence Malick beautiful, or it's not like like Richard Linkletter or beautiful. It's not like painterly and kind of calm paced. It goes for the gusto. It goes broadly theatrical, but in that, it's a really, really beautiful movie full of really, really interesting characters and interesting, like an interesting core dynamic and a core struggle that I intend to revisit. Like I like in like I was sort of lukewarm about this movie because I'm generally kind of lukewarm on like. Guillermo del Toro's outcome, if not his intent. Like I said, I'm happy he's out there. Um, uh, and I, I'm going to revisit this one. This is going to be a film that I own. I really, really like um, kind of in re-exploring it and discussing it. I'm, I'm drawn more into the film than I was upon initial viewing. And I think it's because I've shifted my focus from one character in one predicament to another character in another predicament. Um, so you guys, final thoughts. I agree with you. I think it's a second watch, maybe third. I look forward to seeing it with other people after having taken it apart and seeing different people's reactions and also just exploring these characters that carry so much that they don't necessarily spell out for you, even though it is a melodrama. I think it'll be so much fun to see um, Edith again, to see Lucille again, and knowing what we know from start to finish to see how they hold their truths throughout the film, knowing where it goes. Absolutely. This this. Film is um, definitely it's a visual experience, uh, and so seeing, seeing it on a big screen is really the way to go. Um, but I, I would love to see it again, um, so I can pick up on a lot of the details I missed before. Uh, Guillermo del Toro has such like a deft hand at cinematography and the set dressings, and it really comes through. And so um, that amazing background with these characters um, who are so fascinating, um, and when you when you watch it again and you see it as this dance between Edith and Lucille, I think that'd be really fun. Um, he he wrote really amazing women characters, and it's real. It's so engaging to like see them parry back and forth, and especially that final scene, and and to sort of watch it without um, without a head for the plot, and just watching it to enjoy seeing them, uh, you know, fight over Thomas's immortal soul in this manner. Like that, that's fun, and that's that's what this movie was. This movie was a lot of fun. All right, so that's it. Um, and before we go, I like to you know throw out my recommendations for people who like this kind of thing. Um, I have two that spring into my mind. First off, for like cla- I think the, one of the greatest horror writers, uh, American novelists, and sort of like masters of the gothic. And I've got two: um, Joyce Carol Oates, because uh, I think she would do. She does this kind of story very, very well. Uh, albeit in more modern sensibilities. And also, uh, more especially, Shirley Jackson, who I referenced earlier. Like, the everything about what Americans would understand of the Gothic comes from Shirley Jackson. and comes from, like, um, uh, Haunting of Hill House, We've Always Lived in the Castle, things like that. And they're beautiful. Like, The Haunting of Hill House is the best ghost story of all time. Uh, so I highly recommend that one. And if you like this sort of combative melancholy and sort of like pushing and pulling of each other's relationships, the one story that really springs to mind, again, like showing my like goony theatrical adolescent goth roots, uh, the Vampire Lestat Chronicles. Because the combat between Lestat and Louis in terms of like pushing, like two predators pushing each other um, and like con- like constraining their morality against really gorgeous backdrops and really interesting sensual experiences um it really reminded me of that so i think those two are kind of those if you like crimson peak i recommend checking out uh the lestat stories especially the earlier two or three and um uh uh, shirley jackson 
So I, I gotta. There's this Joyce Carol Oates book I'm trying to remember, but I'm just drawing a blank, and it is a literal gothic haunted house story. So Google it. Be a better person than I am. Uh, far away. Yeah, I brought it up a little earlier, but I'd, I'd love to do a double feature with this movie and House of Yes to see the modern and then gothic take on a very, very similar storyline. Um, also dealing with two different um, sort of imperial dark characters and, and who have very similar male counterparts. Um, and lately I've been listening a lot to the most recent IMX album, um, which is very overwrought and emotional and dark in its own way. So I think it would be good accompaniment. If you want to watch this film and turn off the sound and you need um, music that evokes the feeling, then I would definitely go with that. So, too, like today I've been listening to nothing but Lord. And I guess that's sort of full. And it's Lord, 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 Lord. Royals. They will never be royals. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Oh, uh, so, yeah, so I just told Becky that we do this, and, like, yeah, it's kind of putting her on the spot. So, you're welcome. Uh, anyway, first off, thank you all for joining us again. Thank if you're you. new, thank you for uh, listening to our show. I want to thank both my amazing hosts who made this show, and both of you, please come back. You guys are spot on for this stuff. So, um, I just want to say farewell. Thank you so much. This was super fun. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Joe, and thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, so emails creaturecastsf at gmail.com website is creaturecast.net we're on Facebook we're on Tinder Tinder (laughs) (laughs) shit we're on Facebook we're on Twitter (laughs) oops (laughs) I mean yeah anyway uh God. Okay, I lost. I lost the. I lost my dignity as and a horror stay host. Stay tuned for the the gothic horror uh, with Tinder that we're all going to be writing. Yeah, we're we're putting that one together immediately. Anyway, uh, creaturecast.net, creaturecast is up at sfsanfrancisco at gmail um, Facebook, Twitter, etc. etc. <laughs> uh, let us know what you think, and we'll be back next time for another creepy edition of the Creaturecast. Ciao. Creature Cast, a darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre.